Good morning. Thanks, Mark, as always. Um, I found myself as I'm getting ready to get up here, and as I, and honestly, as I was preparing this week, um, realizing that Ben had roasted me so bad a couple weeks ago, and this is not me about to do anything like that to him. I'm, uh, I'm better than that, but... Um, <laughs> Uh, I found myself last week kind of like self-conscious of my hands. Uh, and if you were here, you would know why. Um, so I think this morning I'll be a little more animated. The uh, ghost of Ben is, uh, well, it won't be a ghost tomorrow, but it, it's a little further behind me. So uh, uh, all that being said, my name's Zach. If you're visiting with us this morning, I'm the associate pastor here. It's my privilege um, to be preaching from God's word to you this morning. As Joshua mentioned earlier, uh, this is my first time doing a back-to-back and uh, kind of getting to pick something and develop it on my own. And this is something that I've been working through uh, over the past couple years that I thought was important. Uh, It's really influenced how I'm approaching ministry uh, with our kids, with our youth group, and and, and the little, or maybe maybe not the little, but the things I do elsewhere, whether it's a small group or coming up here from time to time. Um, this morning, we're going to be looking at Romans 12, 1 and 2. Uh, I think that was probably printed on your bulletin if you're tracking there. But before we do that, um, I need to settle and then we'll pray and we'll get going. So let's, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for, thank you for Sundays, God. Um, thank you for the opportunity, the, just the rhythm that you've given to us uh, in our week. Um, where you've called us to gather together with one another and, and worship you. Um, and while we express ourselves and we show our gratitude, we show our love, we show our affection, all these things to you in our worship, um, that worship is doing something to us as well. When we see fellow believers, fellow saints worshiping you um, through all of the ups and downs that life brings, uh, we come to this place with lots of different issues. Uh, maybe it was just a hectic, busy week. Maybe there was some kind of loss, whatever it might be, God. uh, We're here, and we've gathered here to worship you, and we do that through communion. We do that through our offering. We do that through prayer. We do that through singing. And and we do that through sitting under your word and and being taught and instructed and formed by your word. Um, Lord, I just pray that you would bless this time we have together, that you would use me, use my preparation for the good of myself and the good of this congregation that you've placed here at Prairie View Christian Church. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, so I, I think, I'm, I'm pretty sure, Ben is pretty organized and scheduled uh, and doesn't do things on the fly, really. So right now, we're planning on going through the book of Romans later this year. But this morning, like I mentioned a moment ago, we are kind of just jumping in, jumping in hot to Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. And we'll try and get our bearings quickly uh, and Kind of like what Mike was saying, there's, there's kind of a lot you can take out of just a few words or just a couple of verses. Um, but we'll try and get our bearings quickly, and then we're going to head off in our direction. That being said, let's go ahead and read Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. It says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Romans 12 
is a pivot within the book of Romans. Up to this point, the author of the book of Romans, really a letter to the early Roman church, the Apostle Paul, he's written doctrine, doctrine, and more doctrine. He's saying, know this, believe this, think this. Here's what happened. Here's how it works. Here's why it works. These first 11 chapters that, again, we are glossing over this morning are an explanation of the facts of the gospel. God is renewing the world, cleansing it of sin and death and decay, just like he promised. And this has begun through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, remaking creation by breathing life into the dead, just like at the beginning of creation when God breathed life into Adam. And this work is happening here in flesh and bones, on earth and dirt and clay, through the church, the people of God, empowered by the Holy Spirit. These are the things being laid out. And then Romans 12 comes and Paul says, therefore, therefore, in light of all these truths, all these doctrines, these facts of the gospel, here's what you need to do. Offer yourself as a living sacrifice. And you do this by not being conformed to the world and by being transformed by the renewal of your mind. In Christianity, we refer to this as sanctification. Now, you might not be familiar with the word sanctification. I heard it compared to medical terms. We might not know the medical terms, but they're really important. It's really important that they work. It's really important that they make sense to somebody. And so we might not be super familiar with the idea of sanctification, but the practicality and the usefulness of it is very important to us. Strictly speaking, sanctification means being set apart. For instance... Fine china is sanctified. You don't pull out the fine china when you grill hot dogs in the summer. You, you reserve them. You save them and set them aside for those special occasions that may only come around once every few years. Likewise, a toothbrush is sanctified. A toothbrush is only for brushing teeth. Anything else in that toothbrush has become defiled, unclean, it's unfit for use. So when we speak of sanctification, we need to realize that first and foremost, it is a matter of purpose and position. Sanctification is not a matter or not primarily concerned with moral behavior, moral perfection, but with service and worship. The Christian is being set apart to wholeheartedly serve God and wholeheartedly worship him. Not good behavior. Service and worship, right, will take the form of good behavior. It will look like morality. It will look like striving towards moral perfection because God is the giver of morality. God is the giver of what's good. And God is served and worshipped by our obedience and through our obedience. But God's first concern isn't your obedience or your morality. It is your worship. And Romans 12, 1 and 2 shares that. It echoes that concern. It says, offer your worship to God as a living sacrifice. Holy and acceptable. Holy carries the same meaning as sanctification. To be holy is to be sanctified. It is to be devoted entirely, set apart for God. To worship him and serve him and him alone. And we are called to be holy. If you don't believe me, there are a number of places that we're going to see just now, right now, through the Bible that tell us and command us to be holy. One of those is in Psalm 119. It's verse 4 that we looked at last week. It says, You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. 
Now, that's admittedly not super straightforward. It doesn't say, you must be holy, or you must be entirely devoted to me. But, but it's really not that far of a jump, especially in the whole scope of the Bible, to read, you need to keep these precepts diligently, and conclude that we ought to be wholly devoted to God. But in case that's not convincing enough, it's not straightforward enough, maybe you want to look at it a different way. Leviticus 11.45 says this, it says, For I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. Elsewhere in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, who wrote the book of Romans that we are looking at this morning, he says this in 1 Thessalonians, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. It's pretty clear. But if, again, if that's not clear enough, in the words of Jesus Christ himself, on the night of his arrest, he is praying to God the Father, saying all these things out loud in the midst of his disciples, and he says this. He says, and for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. We are undeniably called to holy living. And this calling implies that there is something to be separated from. If we are to be sanctified, there has to be a category of things that is unsanctified. And this is where that distinction of morality and moral perfection is so important. Sanctification, again, isn't a matter of moral perfection or even moral excellence. You are set apart for worship, not good behavior. Good behavior, again, just to repeat, morality. We worship God through our obedience. We serve God through our obedience, absolutely. But it isn't the end-all, be-all, right? Someone could be morally excellent, yet unsanctified, while someone else might be morally crooked, yet sanctified. So to call someone unsanctified or unholy isn't automatically making a moral judgment. You could be a good person who takes care of your family and takes care of your neighbors and drives the speed limit and picks up after your dog and not be sanctified, Those things can be true of you. You can be a good citizen of the world without being set apart for God. But because we are called to be holy, we are called to be sanctified, we can be confident that there is some unholy realm that we need to be separated from. And in Romans 12, 2, that unholy realm is referred to as the world. And the world frequently carries this negative baggage in the Bible. In James 4, 4, We read that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Ephesians 2 says, you were dead in your sins following the course of this world. The book of 1 John tells us not to love the world. That if you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. Colossians 1 refers to it as the domain of darkness. Which doesn't that sound lovely? As opposed to the kingdom of God's beloved Son. However... As is so often the case, it may be made even more pertinent by our communion meditation. The Bible presents us with a bit of a dilemma. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So we've been commanded right, in our sanctification not to love the thing that God loves. We can't love the world even though God does. We're not supposed to love the world. Well, like so much of our faith, there's a tension that must be managed. We must not love the world. It's true. But we must love and serve and worship a God who did and does 
and always will love the world. Which means we have to, we need to love the world while holding on to that tension of, of not loving the world and wrestling through that. In order to be a living sacrifice, we must reject the world and turn our hearts away from it. And yet, we have to turn our hearts back to it and, and discern God's will, which includes saving sinners through the sacrifice of his son out of his love and grace and mercy. So, so far from Romans 12, 1 and 2, we can safely say that we've been called to be sanctified. And sanctification requires division, which in this case means separation from the world. And while separate from the world, and in a certain sense, turning our hearts back to it, right, away from it, we have to still, out of love for God, turn our hearts, turn our affections back to the world if we're going to serve and honor God. And so we allow ourselves to be swallowed up in God's will, God's purposes, and we present ourselves as a living sacrifice to God, which is our spiritual, or if you're reading from the NIV particularly, it probably says, true and proper worship. A living sacrifice. And that, again, is another one of these beautiful, confusing tensions that we find in the Bible. Because a sacrifice, frankly, brings to mind something dead. Especially when we're reading about sacrifices in the Bible. Granted, there were vegetable offerings and grain offerings and different kinds of offerings, but the offerings we're most familiar with are animal sacrifices. And in a very tangible, visceral, real way, animal sacrifices embody what it means to be sanctified. An animal isn't partially offered. Sacrifices were all all consuming because you can't die halfway. An animal was on the altar and it was all there. It was all in. And when it was killed, that's where it was. It's where it stayed. Everything it had, everything it was, was on that altar sanctified, set apart for God. As Christians, we are called to lay our lives on the altar and be all in. We don't just give God our minds, behaving in our bodies however we'd like. We don't just give God our hearts, behaving in our bodies however we'd like. We don't just give God our Sundays or our homes or whatever it is. We give God our entire selves, our body, head to toe, to God's service. But of of course you do, or of course you're supposed to. Sanctification can mean nothing less. Right? Presenting yourself as a living sacrifice can mean nothing less. But all of us in here know that it's not that simple. Whether, wherever you are at with Jesus, you know this to be the case. You, we know what we're supposed to do, but we don't do it. You don't need to be born again to believe patience is a good thing. And you don't need to be born again to believe lying is a bad thing. But who hasn't lost their patience? Who hasn't told a lie? As Christians, we know things like the Bible tells us that we'll be persecuted for Christ's sake, but we, we tend to avoid those awkward conversations where it might make sense to bring Jesus up because oh, I might be a little uncomfortable. They might think I'm weird. We, we know that the Bible tells us that we're supposed to confess our sins to each other but man, it's, it's a lot easier to hide them. We, we, we know that we're supposed to do everything as if for the Lord. But we slack, we cut corners, no one's watching, who cares, this doesn't matter. See, we're called to be sanctified. 
set apart, living sacrifices. But just when it feels like we're getting it, that holiness is at our fingertips, it's within our reach, and maybe you've never felt that. But if you do, something typically happens to make you realize that holiness is still far away. Last week, as Joshua alluded to earlier, we looked at this same problem in Psalm 119. Psalm 119 is filled with references to knowledge of God's law, knowledge of God. And it's filled with references to a life of action and obedience. Where we often run into a wall between what we know and what we do, David shows a way through. In Psalm 119.11, David writes that the way of sanctification, the way to keep his way, his life pure, was to hide God's word in his heart. But, But as we talked about last week, the heart is much more than we typically think. For us... The heart is this emotional, irrational, maybe even untamable co-pilot of our souls, partnered with the mind. But in the Bible, and again, we looked at this last week, Proverbs 27, 19, tells us that the man is a reflection of his heart. This doesn't mean that emotions are all that matters. This doesn't mean that what we think of when we think of a person needs to shrink down to what we think of the heart. What it means is our understanding of the heart needs to grow, that the heart when you're reading the Bible, isn't just a matter of your emotions and what you feel. It's your understanding. It's your will. It's all-encompassing. <clears throat> so when David talks about hiding God's word in his heart, he has something more in mind than a sappy sentimentality towards God's word. I'm not saying that kind of feeling is bad or wrong or even undesirable. We should feel intense emotion and passion for those things, just like happened this morning in front of us. That's, that's great. Those are great things. But there is a way to stay faithful when that feeling fades and those blazing hot flames of love are reduced to embers. And so to avoid any confusion with our modern idea of the heart, I am addressing the gut. Your gut has feelings. But it's not exactly passionate. And your gut has a way of knowing, but it's not exactly thoughtful. Now, as Christians, we spend a lot of time on our minds. We even cite Romans 12, 1 and 2 as evidence for the importance of our mind, for the centrality of it. Our minds need to be renewed. And we certainly worry about our hearts, sometimes totally abandoning our minds in the process because we just want to feel and experience God. All the while... We have been totally oblivious to the way our gut is being formed to long for the world. If we're going to offer ourselves to God, our whole selves, then it's important for us to realize the ways our gut is being pulled. The world wants your service. The world wants you to be a good citizen of the world, not the kingdom of God. And for as much as these two kingdoms may line up, the values of the world are in direct contradiction on many, many points with the kingdom of God, with the values of God. Why else would God, in his word, command us to not be conformed to this world? But the devil uses that overlap to convince you that they're the same thing, that you can somehow have one toe in both, that you can live in the world, conformed to the world, and still be a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. And this convincing, this conforming, It's probably not happening through the presentation of ideas by some prominent atheist on your television or your radio. 
You might be thinking to yourself, hang on, hang on. Romans 12 makes it pretty plain. You just renew your mind. That's it. If you're struggling to present yourself as a living sacrifice, then you just need more knowledge. You need more theology, more doctrine. Good stuff, holy stuff, godly fuel to be transformed through the renewal, a.k.a. informing of your mind. But that's not it. Your problem isn't that your mind doesn't know the right stuff. Your, your mind isn't an unbiased spectator sorting through the facts to arrive at, at a conclusion. The problem, and I said this last week, the problem isn't that you don't know the right things. It's that you love the wrong things. Using strikingly similar language in the book of Ephesians, Paul, again, he says, Christians must be renewed in the spirit of your minds. The spirit of your minds. And this follows comments about ignorance and darkened understanding due to hardness of heart. See, your heart, what you love, what defines your life, can blind your mind. They say, you know, love is irrational, right? And love is blind almost. (laughs) So that seeing you don't see and hearing you don't hear. The renewal we need isn't an outpouring of information. Information Don't get me wrong. Information is great. Through information, we come to know Jesus. My job as a preacher is to present information, to proclaim the good news of the gospel. But information alone cannot save you or set you apart for the service of God. The Christian life isn't just a matter of getting the facts straight because the Christian life is just that. It's life. And we don't always live by the facts. You are called to be a living sacrifice, and living is not just a matter of having the right information. Think about any of the commercials you've seen or heard recently. They're not selling you a product as much as they're selling you a lifestyle. Buy this car, and you will be interesting. You will be sophisticated. You will be cool. You'll be adventurous. Isn't this mountain view great? Or... Buy this coffee and drink this coffee and the sun will shine and the birds will sing right outside your window and the kids won't make a mess at breakfast. They'll they'll dress themselves and even pack their own lunch. See, ads aren't teaching you about their product with facts and information. They're not they're not worrying or working on your mind in that way to get you to act to buy their products. They're inviting you to imagine yourself in in a story with that product hopefully playing a key role. And maybe one ad on its own doesn't move the needle for you. But when the average person is exposed to, I don't know, 5,000 ads a day, you don't need to believe the hype on any of those products to slowly begin believing the story that they're selling you. That you're broken and what you need is just a purchase away. See, we fall into this story of consumerism, this idea of consumerism, not by argument, Consumerism is the silliest argument. Things are going to make you happy. Well, no, they won't. If anyone thinks about that for three seconds, they figure that out. And yet we still look to things and turn to things, again, not because we're being argued or persuaded into it by facts and information, but because we're conformed to it because it's the water we swim in. And this is just one example. I have several others of the things we do, the things that we're surrounded by that are forming us um, and steering us away from God. And and again, they're not doing this by telling us God isn't good or that God can't satisfy us or that God won't provide for us. But again, they're inviting us over and over and over again into a story, into a kind of world 
where we really can find satisfaction in a new car and, and in a new smartphone and a new sweater on sale at Target. See, the world becomes a place for my needs to be met. Smartphones, again, do something similar. They change the way we experience the world. If, if Hannah is gone for 20 minutes longer than I expected, I'm calling, saying, what's going on? And she, if she doesn't answer, my heart rate goes up, I get a little nervous, I call again. And sure enough, maybe immediately, maybe five minutes later, maybe three hours later, she calls back and says, oh, hey, I didn't have my phone. Hey, I couldn't hear it. Are you, are you okay? Yeah, I'm okay. What do you, but, but were we always that impatient with people before smartphones came around? Or if smartphones, just by being there, not teaching us, not telling us anything, have they changed how we look at people, how we expect people to act? Another example, social media, right? Because of smartphones, social media has been able to blow up. And, and social media turns every moment, every space into a potential stage. You're always performing or always can be performing when everyone's carrying around a high-definition camera and high-definition video recorder and can instantly post it. And, and we're posting and curating our best selves, and all we're seeing from others is their best self. Do we, how, how is that changing us? How is that shaping us? I don't think it's a coincidence that anxiety and depression has risen in adolescence with the rise of smartphones and this kind of technology. See, the chances are you aren't being conformed to the world by a sinister horned monster or a talking snake, but a bunch of seemingly harmless activities that are teaching us to look at the world the wrong way and teaching us to love the wrong things. Your head might be filled with knowledge from sermons and books and small groups and Bible study, yet your life doesn't reflect what you know because your gut has been trained in these ways that you've overlooked because they weren't ideas going into your mind. If you desire, if we desire to be set apart from the world, not conform to it, then we need to appreciate that there is more at stake than ideas and information. But still, that, that doesn't change the fact that Romans 12 says you must be transformed by the renewal of your mind. This concept of renewal, the, the Greek word, I hate referencing Greek, but it's, it's there and it's true. Um, it's only mentioned one other time in the Bible, and that one other place is in Titus 3, um, beginning in verse 4. It says, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly, through Jesus Christ, our Savior. First of all, all the sanctification stuff, it only starts after you're saved. And you are saved according to the goodness and loving kindness of God. Not your own righteousness, not your own deservedness. You are not saved because you love God enough. You are not saved because you are good enough. You are saved because God chooses to show mercy and save you. The fact is, God wouldn't have to show mercy. He wouldn't have to show it at all in the first place if you weren't a weak, pitiable, contemptible creature. But you are. You were. I was. Dead in our sin, unable to do anything for ourselves, enemies of God. And even still, 
God shows his love to us. And this is true in Romans 12 as well. It says, by the mercies of God, we are to offer ourselves as living sacrifices. God has been abundantly merciful with us through his son, Jesus Christ. So don't believe that your standing with God rests on your ability to perform. It doesn't. There's a reason, a very good reason, that Jesus pronounced it is finished from the cross. At the cross, Jesus was the dying sacrifice, paying the penalty of sin once for all, making it possible for those who now trust in him to be living sacrifices. He lived the perfect life we couldn't, died the death we deserved, and and gives us life. And through that life, we are called to be holy. We're called to reflect Jesus' own life and so honor God through our worship and our service. In this calling, in this calling, we've not been left to ourselves. We've been given the gift, it's been poured out on us of the Holy Spirit to renew our minds so we might be transformed and offer ourselves as living sacrifices. And this renewal isn't just a matter of information. Although it certainly includes this, we must know that we're sinners. We must know that we deserve judgment for our sin. We must know that we could never save ourselves or accomplish anything on our own to appease the wrath of God. And we must know that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that he, he lived, he died, he was buried and rose three days later. We need to know those things. There are lots of things we need to know and things we ought to know. But we know knowing's not enough. If being conformed to this world isn't just a matter of information, then we can be sure that the opposite is true. Being set apart for wholehearted worship to God isn't just a matter of information. God has given us simple practices, frankly, to take up, and they look a whole lot like church. The way we gather together together Sunday after Sunday, it's forming us into a family, into a chosen people, a holy nation, placed together by God to help one another, encourage one another, love one another, build one another up. When we gather together on Sunday morning or Monday night or whatever week of the night your small group meets on or you show up on a Friday morning for the men's group or Thursday night for the women's group, you are saying, whether you realize it or not, that this matters. You are giving your life and orienting your life around the things of God. And you might not be thinking about it, but just through those practices, just through the act of gathering together, you are saying, something's happening here that matters in my life. Communion forms us into the kind of people who honor God, whether we eat or drink. We know, we're we're told, maybe we don't know, but the Bible says, so whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Well, communion is a very, very good opportunity every single week to figure out what that means. What does it mean to honor God when we eat and drink? Communion also forms us into the kinds of people who follow a crucified Savior, offering life to others through his own suffering. It makes us into the kinds of people who are aware of our sin and helplessness through habit, through practice, through that repetition. It forms us into the kinds of people who are dependent on grace and mercy and forgiveness. The reading and preaching of God's word, lastly, reminds us that we're needy. We're dependent people. We're not self-determined. We don't make the rules. We don't get to do just whatever we want. We must submit to the authority of God. 
And showing up on a Sunday morning and hearing God's word preached is doing that. Whether you realize you're training yourself in that or not. But none of this is foolproof. The only thing that's foolproof is the work of God himself. Without the spirit of God, the spiritually dead stay spiritually dead. Just as information on its own isn't enough, practices and habits and these things we surround ourselves with, these gut level formations, they're not enough on their own either. Yet we shouldn't overlook these ordinary things because, well, because they seem so ordinary. They seem so natural. They seem unsanctified. And we shouldn't fear this sanctification of being separated out of the world as if it's some exercise in boredom and dullness. And that as we leave the world, we leave everything good behind and we shuffle our feet and, I don't know, wear brown robes and live in monastery. I don't know. Like, we shouldn't think that in our mind is what sanctification is. Because when we turn from the world and fix our eyes on God, it's at that point that we can look back at the world and see it for what it really is, which is a reflection of God's beauty. It's, it's a place to put God on display. The earth and world is not here to be consumed and for us to find meaning in. It's to be enjoyed for the sake of God. It's not, the earth is not a hideous rock that's going to burn out someday. It's, it's the wonderful stage of God's glory being displayed. And one day it will be renewed. And until then, we play our parts serving and worshiping that very God who is glorified through all of creation with our hearts and our minds and our guts. And we're grateful that God is at work in us and we're grateful that he accepts our imperfect sacrifice because of Christ's perfect one. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. God, thank you for the way um, that even if we miss it, the Bible is filled with stuff for the whole person. God, that you aren't just a teacher who's working or concerned with our brains, leaving our hands and our feet and all of those things to whatever we might figure out. God, and we, we can't or shouldn't look for your word to tell us every decision that we ought to make, and for that we need your wisdom, and, and we need discernment. And, and those things happen through the renewal of our mind, which certainly takes place through information. It certainly takes place by knowing that you love us, that knowing you created everything. It all serves you, that we're dead in our sins and yet made alive, in Christ. But God help shape our lives to those ends, to those goals, through the church, through the people we spend our time with. God help us to just grow in our awareness that the things we're taking in every day, even if they're not ideas, even if they're not targeting our brains, are making us a certain kind of people. Um, God, and that as you command us to not be conformed to this world, that your Holy Spirit would illuminate us. And help us see and help us understand the way that we're being shaped, maybe in ways that we never realized before, Lord. And that as we address those things, um, we would find life better and more pleasing to you. Again, not because we need it to earn it, not because we're trying to deserve it, but because we love you and we want to glorify you and we want to make your ways known throughout the world. It's in Jesus' precious name I pray. Amen.